Welcome to The Career Studio, a USU career services podcast that helps you navigate your career path. Thanks for joining us for our Friday face-to-face episode. I'm Marissa Armistead, your host, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Mitchell Culver joining us today. Welcome, Mitch. Thanks for having me, Marissa. Mitch began working in higher education in 2007, where his early experiences with students taught him to focus on the value of human diversity and human potential. As a thought leader in the fields of education and analytics, he is frequently invited to champion the idea that student success can be fostered through increased intentionality amongst instructors, staff, and organizational leaders. His research has appeared in Slate, Business Insider, Smithsonian, and New York Magazine. Internationally, his research has been shared on Radio BBC and Radio New Zealand National. He presents at dozens of events and conferences each year. So Mitch, so excited to have you here today. First, I have to start with a fun fact. Early on in your education, you majored in psychology and music, and that led to being a leading expert on why we get goosebumps when we listen to music. I have to pick your brain on this for just a second. I love Wicked. That is like my jam every day of the week, I think. So why do I get goosebumps, Mitch? <laughs> okay, so it's a good question, Marissa, and thanks for having me on your, on your show here. The reality is, is that our brain is pretty complex. It has some silly things that go on inside of it. Goosebumps, we know from the R.L. Stein book series, have to do with fear, usually. When we're talking about goosebumps, we're talking about, oh, I, I'm freaked out kind of thing. And that really is the source of where we get goosebumps, even when we listen to beautiful music, that what's going on? Why does it happen? Well, you have kind of two brains, your emotional brain, which is kind of more like your animalistic, ready for anything around the next corner kind of brain. And then you have your thinking brain and it has thoughts and it can interpret meaning and it can can go to Wicked, the musical, and it's a story and you get it and you're processing it as a meaning filled experience. Well, the emotional brain doesn't process Wicked that way. I want you to imagine yourself sitting in a Broadway theater listening to Wicked, but you're not a human being, you're a rabbit. And now if you're a a little bunny rabbit sitting in a theater chair and Wicked starts happening, like the musical, dancing and foot pounding choreography and and all these different people yelling. Well, right, because animals don't process singing, they process it as yelling, right? Shouting, screaming, and you would get freaked out. Well, your little bunny kind of oriented brain, your emotional brain, all of ours, when we're in those environments, it's sending all these alarm bells to us that we're in a situation of danger, fight or flight. And just like a rabbit hearing a a stick snap in the woods, we're going to get all flustered and want to bolt out of the theater. But milliseconds after our emotional brain gets a chance to process everything that's happening, our cognitive brain gets to what's called reappraise, cognitively reappraise the stimuli. And that's because the pathway, the stimulus pathway from our ears and our eyes and our senses to the emotional brain is shorter because it's lower in the brain, literally. And then the pathway to the cognitive brain is a little bit longer. And it's that difference of being a little bit shorter and then a little bit longer that when we cognitively reappraise with our thinking brain and we figure out this is just wicked, the musical and it's art and it's culture and it's beautiful and it's thrilling, then it sends this signal down to the emotional brain and and it says, settle down. This is art. This is beautiful, right? And what happens is the emotional brain gets ready to fight or flight, right? And so it fires all these fear responses, right? So have you ever gotten choked up in a theater? Well, that getting choked up comes from the fear response. In an animal setting, getting choked up actually is a form of appeasement where if you cry, a bigger animal that's attacking you might actually leave you alone. And this is why 
why you hear animals cry when they're being attacked. It took my breath away. You've heard that in the theater. Oh, it just took my breath away. Well, cessation of respiration is a way to hide from a predator in a really tense situation. And so the art that you're experiencing is processed as a predator because it's all loud and boomy and foot pounding choreography, like I say. And so you literally can have your breath taken away because your emotional brain wants to hide, so to speak. But then that cognitive reappraisal kicks in and you experience it as a sense of wonder or awe, not as hiding from a predator, but like being amazed. And then the most common one is the goosebumps. Well, what's that about? Animals, when they fight and they have a lot of hair, their hair will stand on end. And that's to make them appear bigger. You've seen two cats in the alleyway and they're all like, they're fluffed up. And that's their hair standing on. That's called piloerection. The, the goosebump is what makes the hair go up. Well, that's exactly what's happening with us, but we're not covered in fur. So we see the goose flesh and, and we go, oh, it's goosebumps. And we also experience it with this pleasure because we also get a hit of dopamine. And to take a long explanation and make it a little bit longer, the reason why it's so pleasurable is because evolutionarily, people are being rewarded for figuring out that it's art, not danger. And so they get a hit of dopamine. And so this is built to all human beings. Only maybe two thirds of us experience goosebumps in reaction to music. And it's the two thirds of us who have figured out how to quickly cognitively reappraise and appreciate something that otherwise might be to our little bunny rabbit brain come off as a little bit scary. So kind of an intense, I mean, overall pretty, what's your reaction to this, Marissa? It's not, not what I was expecting, I think is a fair response, but that's so interesting. And as you're saying that, it explains a lot of things, actually, as you were going through each of those, it made me think of, oh, that's why I did this in this situation. And so it's, it's, it's connecting a lot of dots. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's funny because it's not just music. People get a sense of awe and wonder when they're standing near a large fire. When the Hindenburg went down, it was awful and a lot of people died, but people who were present recount it with a deep sense of awe at the power of that much fire in one place. And it was kind of for them realization that what was happening was really terrible, but also really awe-filled because of the raw power and energy of the Hindenburg exploding. And so because they knew they were far enough away that they were out of danger, they were able to actually cognitively reappraise it and have this deep sense of wonder at the power of fire, you know? There's lots of examples of this. There's operas that are louder and that are more atonal. Richard Wagner, the German operatic composer, a lot of his operas are loud, they're pompous, and they're atonal. So they have kind of a quality of a little bit of a, a twinge to the music. And people report a heck of a lot of goosebumps when they listen to Richard Wagner's music because it has that, like, if you were a bunny rabbit, the fear. Theater, it has this fear, right, quality. Like, But because we're people, we go, oh, no, this is art. This is beautiful. What I'm witnessing here. And then crying and then catching my breath and the goosebumps. So, so interesting, Mitch. And usually I try and tie in the fun fact and I have no tie in here, but that's so interesting. So I had to bring it up. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, that's just fine. Well, with the new year often comes a time of reflection and we want to really look at some of those thoughts, especially around careers this month. And so our theme is really focusing in on how do we determine our career non-negotiables, kind of these career deal maker breakers, if you will. So I would love to have you take us back in time just a little bit, Mitch, and talk to us about how you decided upon your bachelor degree majors, because they aren't intricately connected necessarily to what you are doing now. So I started college a little bit younger than 
than or a lot bit younger than and typical and and what that meant was that I didn't know what I wanted to do so I was very flighty I went from pre-law to pre-med to looking at maybe I wanted to do physics or maybe I wanted to do psychology I wasn't sure and then as part of that you do the exploration process so my first two years I was kind of going to the academic catalog like the course schedule that was being published and kind of using it like a menu I literally both colleges that I attended for those first two years would go through and read the course schedule because they used to be printed right now they're all online but they used to be actually like you could go and pick it up from the school and, and you'd read through it I'd read every single class that didn't have a prerequisite I would read the synopsis and I would pick the ones I thought were cool and it was an especially nice if they met requirements for general education <laughs> well in that process I finally took a history of Western music one and it was taught by this guy Tom Takayama up in Chicago and he was great and he taught music history in a way that made me fall in love with the stories of the composers, the stories of how music changed over time and why it is what it is, why a lot of older music is more religious and different things, because it turns out there's a lot of old music that was non-religious. It just was never written down. We don't have it anymore. So it's kind of sad. Like there's all this secular music, what's called secular music, you know, non-religious music that we don't know about because it was never written down. It was played by minstrels, traveling minstrels. And so I thought that was fascinating. So I took then the next semester music history too and fell even more in love and then added to music classes like introductory to music and I took up learning to play the organ and I had learned to play the piano I'd never taken lessons but I started falling in love and, and so then I'm transferred to BYU Hawaii and majored in music that year as part of that they kind of ask you to take a learning class because they figure a lot of music majors are going to end up as teachers right ultimately let's be honest a lot of musicians <laughs> sure. are performance musicians they're teachers so you take a learning and teachings concepts class and the teacher of that class her name was Marilee Webb. And she lit me on fire with the idea of human potential, the brain, what it's capable of, and why music really is such a nice tie-in to a healthy emotional and mental experience in life. And so that class was so cool, I actually wanted an independent study another semester with her. And she agreed to that. So at the end of that semester, she said to me, she gave me advice. And this advice, this is one of those moments when a mentor says something and then it completely changes your life. She said to me, hey, Mitch, I want to talk to you. She said, you love this psychology stuff. You love this education stuff. And she said, you're a really good musician. And what I worry is, is that right now you're a music major and you're going to finish in music and that'll be good and great. But the thing is, is you can do music without a degree because you can show up and do music, like sit down on the piano and play, or you can conduct a choir or you can compose a piece of music and the proof's in the pudding. Nobody cares if you have a degree. But she says, if you want to run in education circles or psychology circles, no one will take you seriously unless you have a degree. So she said, I wonder seriously if you want to finish. I had done three years at that point. If you want to finish in music or if it would be more wise for you to finish in psychology. So that freaked me out. I took a semester off because I really needed to like come to myself about this. And then I moved to Las Vegas where my parents were at that time and started taking some psychology classes from a guy named Gary Solomon at the college there. And he was amazing. I took abnormal psych and introductory psych and that lit me on fire. And so I transferred back to, eventually transferred back to BYU Hawaii and was able to do a dual major, right? So I had all these, I had three years of music credits, right? So it seemed like a waste. I wanted to finish in psychology. So I did an interdisciplinary degree, right? So it was all of the credits 
of a psychology major minus one class and then three years of the music classes. And it was this dual degree. And so it actually took me seven years to finish. But then that allowed me to do my master's to do this research about goosebumps. My master's was in counseling, but then I had to do a research project in order to finish the degree. And I was able to do the goosebumps and then it went viral like six years later. And so now this is why I go around and talk about goosebumps and stuff. But really that was the path and it was completely unexpected. And it's one of these things where it's a mentor that steps in and tells you something about yourself that you didn't even realize. So really valuable. I would love to keep this conversation going about education. So kind of move into, so you get this master's degree and then talk to us about the transition to your PhD because that was a little bit different. Yeah. So the funny thing was when I was going to teach as a faculty member in psychology, and that's really what I wanted to do after I got my master's, but I had tutored while I was a graduate student and I worked in an academic success center for this guy. His name was Aaron Brown. In the summer before I was supposed to start teaching, after I had finished my master's, I ran into him in the hallway and he had a big stack of papers and he kind of looked like he was on his way somewhere. We caught up with each other. We hadn't seen each other in two months. And then the last parting comment to him before we parted ways, I said, oh, what is this big stack of papers you got? And he said, oh, I'm going to post two job openings, professional positions. And I said, what job openings, Aaron? He was literally the best boss I had had up until that point. And he said, oh, well, you might be interested in one. And he showed it and it was a retention and learning specialist. So I applied and got it. And then I fell in love with that job so much that within three weeks, I was actually running to work because each day, because I couldn't wait to get there because I would walk. We were 10 minutes away. So I just walked to work, but my walks became, I got to get there. I love my job so much. And it was helping students to find themselves. It was helping students to navigate the complex world of university. It was mentoring and guiding students, helping them find tutors, training and employing tutors. And so over four years, I really found myself deepening my love of higher education, deepening my love of helping students pursue their goals in university and reach those goals and of that mentoring component. But my salary wasn't where I wanted it to be. And certainly if I wanted to support a family, it wasn't where it needed to be. And every path that I looked at spelled out PhD. I had to go one step further in order to get the salary up. And I had also been offered the opportunity to teach a class because one of the professors had died just immediately before the semester started. And they were scrambling and they said, well, oh, Mitch, you used to teach for us. Like, could you come back and do this one class in addition to your full-time job, like in the evenings or whatever? And I was like, sure. And it was educational psychology, which harkened back to that Merrily Webb class in the music program. It was teaching and learning conferences was the same thing. And so it allowed me to revisit that. And then I realized I want a PhD in education because I was thinking PhD in psychology or counseling, but I want the PhD in this educational psychology stuff. And so I came in, and Utah State was at the time was like top five in the West for graduate school of education. So I came to Utah State and did a PhD in curriculum and instruction. And that was kind of like my next career move, right? Making sure that I was always protecting my long-term interests as a professional. Mitch, I'm so interested. So in this idea of pivoting, because at each of these points, there was kind of a moment where you had to shift a little bit. How did you know in the moment you were making the right shift or the right pivot? Yeah. So I should say I'm fairly religious. And so there's a component of that, of feeling impressions of yes, no, this, that. At the same time, I should say that in all cases, I was always following my strengths and interests, right? Like whatever else individuals do in life, self-knowledge is sometimes some of those powerful tools that you can have. And knowing when you're excited about something and using that excitement, that passion as a guide to say, well, I want a little bit more of this, that can help you 
And so in all of these examples, you'll notice I came across something that maybe I wasn't expecting, but I got excited about, right? So like in the first example with the music, I just happened to take a class and it turned out I really loved it. So I stuck with it. With the education psychology, I just happened to take a class. It turned out I loved it. But then I took the initiative to say, can I do another semester of this independent study? If I hadn't put my time and energy in a little bit more, then it wouldn't have ultimately paid off. No, I love that. And I love this using your excitement as a guide. I think that's such a great insight because you are drawn to the things that you're interested in. And therefore, you're probably good at those things because you're interested in them as well. So I I think that's a really great insight. Well, and I also want to stay on that same vein of you were talking about different aspects of how you made these decisions, you know, whether it was spiritual, but you also mentioned, you know, your family was a big part of that decision making. And so this kind of moves into that conversation of non-negotiables. What were some other things you were considering? You mentioned pay as well. Were there any other things you considered kind of these non-negotiables? Well, when looking at jobs, even though I've, I think I've had four professional positions since that one I spoke about, like meeting the guy in the hallway. And in every case, I always have selected a job that geographically fits with my interest in being close to family. A lot of my family's in the West, in Washington State, in Nevada, in Utah. And so staying kind of within striking distance of family. And so I had been offered jobs at times and in places like in Texas and And it was just kind of like, well, I don't want to live in Texas. It's not that the university or the organization or the job itself was a problem. It wasn't close to what I knew I needed in life, which is that anchor of family. So for me, that really drew down the number of choices of where to apply for jobs. The other thing is, and I had to learn this later, someone gave me some really good advice. And then I built an equation out of that advice, which I now use to mentor other professionals, which is the equation has three parts. It's your strengths and interests is the first cell. So like if you do box plus box equals box, and then let's fill in those three boxes. So the first box is your strengths and interests. So that's you, that's what who you are, and that's not going to change very much. Your strengths and interests are what they are. And it's really important to know what they are and have a good self-knowledge. Plus, the next box is the organization and the role. And the organization and the role is whatever the job is that you get. And that can change. You can change organizations. You can change jobs even within an organization. And then in order for the equation to be true, it must equal the third box, which is your values and the impact you want to make on society and on the world. And that's not going to change very much either. And so when you're looking at jobs, you have your strengths and interests plus the organization and role that you're going to fill. And it has to equal those values and impacts. And the the first box and the third box don't change. So as you kind of filter in and try to figure out what that second box is, what job do I want? What organization do I want to work for? What role am I going to be good at? Whatever it is, it should make that equation true. I've been offered a lot of money, but a lot of money where it wouldn't have made my equation true. And So I just said, I don't want to do that. I'm sorry. Part of that is knowing what your values are, what that impacts is. For me, that came when I was running to work. Marissa, you know the university I worked for because you were a teenager. We were in the same neighborhood. Yep. Uh, We just happened to now work at Utah State. But back in Washington, there in Cheney at Eastern Washington University, that university was an access university for the region. And it meant that a lot of the students there were first generation, low income, minorities, and other populations that have historically not had a lot of access to higher education. 
station. And what I realized why I was running to work every day, because I couldn't wait to get there, was because at that university, I had found a population of students that I knew needed me in order to make good on their potential. Because all of those students had so much potential and it had just been held back by their life circumstances. And the goal of the university was to invite students into experiences and environments that could supercharge and unlock all of that potential. I say that they needed me, but it wasn't really me. They needed anyone who was willing to see their potential and then collaborate with them to make it happen. And I found myself falling into that role and, and believing that they're at Eastern Washington where they're eagles, right? Where it's a great day to be an eagle, right? That That's the slogan at that university. And I found myself contributing in ways that were needed. I had a supply of resources personally and professionally that were in demand at Eastern Washington. And when I came to Utah State, it's a similar access mission. Utah State University is a land grant, which means it's designed to take education of people where they're at and education of people who otherwise might not have that opportunity to give them that access. And so at Utah State, the roles that I fulfill really allow me to meet that same impact on society. And so whether it's Eastern Washington as a retention and learning specialist or now Utah State as a director of student analytics, my strengths and interests and my values on the two ends of that equation, they don't have to change in order for me to feel excited about my workday and to feel like I really can stick with it. Mitch, I love this example of this equation. I'm honestly not a huge math fan but I love this analogy because you're filling in that X and you get to make the decision of what that X is. And so I really love that analogy. And your comments also made me think of something somebody told me years ago in regards to careers. They said, find a problem you want to solve and make that work. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at here. You know, you found a need and based on the skills that you have and the values that you have, you're able to fill that need. So I really love that approach. I think so many great insights there, Mitch. (laughs) So moving forward, I kind of want to shift a little bit here. I want to talk a little bit about a time when maybe some of those personal values or non-negotiables ever conflicted with a job that you had and what you did in that situation. So there was a position I held where I was working with students who were much more privileged when they were adolescents than the students I had previously worked with. At Eastern Washington, all of the students, even the student leaders that I had worked with, like the the individuals I would hire to work for me. So I had a staff of like 60 to 80 people at any given time, student workers. They all came from disadvantaged backgrounds in a way that what I was giving to them, what I offered them in mentoring and in guidance and in training really was value add to their experience. And they were so appreciative. And it was such a good environment for me to be in and and to to be able to contribute. And so then I found myself at some point in a role that was similar, lots of student workers, but a lot from more privileged backgrounds. And they were student leaders. They had a lot of adolescent experience where they had a lot of mentors that would watch out for them and guide them and lead them through that very difficult time of adolescence. And so when I was just being myself and thinking that here's some more student workers who might need my mentoring, it wasn't as in demand because they had 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 relatively to what I had worked with before, they had relatively more stable lives and home lives and previous experiences before coming to college. And so it was kind of frustrating to me because it was like going from a high of always being helpful around every turn to a low of like, man, am I really even needed here? I'm not sure that I'm saying things that these people haven't heard before from other like youth leaders, right? Because the culture in that geographic region had a lot of youth programs and youth leader mentoring and that kind of thing. 
something where that wasn't as prevalent where I had been. And so I just kind of like for two years tried to emotionally work through like, what am I doing? Well, in that process, I kind of almost gave up a a few times here or there and just said, I'm going to go do something else. But I stuck with it and it eventually led to the opportunity that I'm in now. And in part, it was because in that process, I had to network a lot more than I ever had in order to find like-minded partners, in order to find peers who I could collaborate with. And it was that network, that web of connections that I resorted to kind of like, because I I had some free time, so to speak, like on the job, I had a little bit more time to like, "Mm, I better go visit with someone and see if I can help them. Right. I was basically looking for people that might need my help. Colleagues in this case, right. Are you working on anything that I could help you with? And eventually it led to like this network that allowed me to be hooked in with the right people who knew when this other job opened, Hey, you know who would be good at this job is that Mitch Culver, right? Like, let's get him over here. And that's how that led. So yeah, so there was this period of two years about where I, I felt a little bit lost. It's true that you need to feel valuable. And if you don't feel valuable professionally, that can really create a lot of problems for you. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a really interesting note of self-evaluation because as we move throughout our careers, things are going to change, you know, whether it's values or whether it's just the situation itself. And so I love that you're talking that out for us so we can hear how you went through that process of, okay, am I, am I still happy? Am I currently happy? Do I need to make some changes to find more value or, or more happiness in my job? So I love that you're talking that through with us. I think that's so helpful. And it kind of leads me into what you were mentioning about your current job. So you're currently the director of the Center for Student Analytics here at USU. So talk to us a little bit about what that means. (laughs) So the Center for Student Analytics is a center I helped found. And it was because in higher education, we have been late to the 21st century technology that allows us to use machine learning and to use intelligent systems to make decisions about what to do next. And analytics, the term analytics just kind of means data that's a little bit more living than previously. I mean, there's a lot of data sitting around. Analytics takes data and it puts it in a system that kind of makes it more livened and usable on a day-to-day Analytics had come about through machine learning developments and technology developments, but higher education hadn't really made good on those developments. We lag behind, like for example, healthcare, we lag behind healthcare for about maybe 10 years. Healthcare started adopting analytics as early as 2003. Higher education really didn't catch on until about 2013, 14. And analytics are used in a lot of different ways, but one of the ways they're used is to identify where something might be going wrong that you don't notice. So a common example is like on an elevator, you can install analytics on an elevator and it actually in time using a network of a lot of different elevators can figure out when the elevator is about to break. Nobody likes a broken elevator, but you can install analytics in an elevating system across you know hundreds of elevators that are all the exact same brand and design. And as long as you feed the data into the analytics about when it breaks and how it breaks and then how often it's used and all these things, it can predict and send an elevator repairman out before the elevator breaks to fix the thing that probably is about to break. Really clever, right? That's awesome. And you listen to that and you're like, well, that's amazing. Like, so you never have to have a broken elevator. It's like, no, it's always scheduled maintenance. Your elevator never breaks and it's out of order. It's always scheduled maintenance that can happen overnight when nobody wants the elevator, right? So how cool is that? Well, healthcare figured it out with patients you could figure out when patients were going to break, but not break, but die. You could figure out when patients were going to die. And so you use a network of information and predict in in this example, it's sepsis, right? So when your kidneys stop cleaning your blood and you get blood poisoning, essentially, it's infection that can't be controlled. And then you die because your blood is dirty and it's called sepsis. 
and it actually is a leading cause of death in hospitals, people die from sepsis rather than dying from the thing that they showed up with, right? They might be in a motorcycle accident, but then die from sepsis, not from the injuries of the motorcycle accident, right? Because they get this infection in their blood. The thing is you can't test for sepsis. And so hospitals were really having a hard time figuring out how do we stop this like pandemic of sepsis? Like it's happening all over. Well, you can predict using a constellation of symptoms that a patient might be developing sepsis and then it turns a light on and then the nurse can go and assess and figure out, hmm, does this patient look like they're about to go septic? And if the nurse thinks so, then they can get the doctor in and prescribe antibiotics. Harborview Medical in Seattle, it's a beautiful hospital up on the hill in Seattle. They implemented this in 2011 and it immediately started saving lives. Their sepsis death rate went through the floor because it was just such a good system. Well, there's people who figured out, well, if you can predict when people die and you can predict when an elevator needs repaired, surely you can predict when a student's about to leave the institution without a degree or we call it dropping out or not persisting. And that's exactly what was made available to Utah State. We purchased a system from a company called Civitas Learning that does exactly that. And it's 85, 86, 87% accurate. It really knows when students are about to leave and not make good on their goal for degree attainment. So they needed someone to run that. And I was invited to run that system. And then the Center for Student Analytics emerged out of that work for two years because we were doing some good work and we have continued. And to this point, we're, we're kind of a national leader in student success analytics because I think, and I should say this, it's partly because it's cross-disciplinary approach, right? I don't have a background in analytics. I come to it from the lens of student success, from human psychology, from education. I come to it with a lot of compassion and a lot of concern about ethics. And I think that's one of the things that allows us to do really high quality work is is that I'm not a data nerd. I might look like one, I have thick glasses, (laughs) but I really try to do student success analytics with the mission of Utah State in mind at every step of the way. That's great. Well, and Mitch, I could talk to you about students and data analytics probably for days. So I'll I'll leave that for another conversation. But I think that's fascinating. And and again, I love that you're using your strengths to really connect and help people. And and I think that's so valuable. We're just about out of time, but I do want to ask you one final question. And that question is, if you could give our listeners one piece of advice about creating or maintaining career non-negotiables, what would it be? Good question. And one of the things that I want to say is, is that when I was in the psychology program, personality psychology was something that I was going to teach and that I got really excited about. There's lots of different types of personalities. And I have one that is really oriented towards keeping options open. A lot in career counseling and a lot in kind of like Covey leadership training stuff, you'll hear people say, you know, what's your five-year goal or what's your 10-year goal, right? Begin with the end in mind. And when people would ask me this question, like, hey, where do you see yourself in five years? I would always not know. I have no idea. Like, I literally don't know. But I would always feel like because they're asking, I have to make something up. And so for years, I would make something up. I'd be like, oh, this thing, even though I wasn't committed to it and didn't even think it was realistic, just an answer to this common question. And when I did the Covey leadership thing, begin with the end of the mind, I was like, eh, sometimes it's better to get going and not necessarily know where you're going and find it. And that's kind of how my life had been. So I kind of felt offended by Stephen Covey. I was like, well, Stephen, like, hold on a second. There are lots of opportunities where you find a path, not knowing what it was going to be. So I didn't know how to explain this to people. And there was this author, his name's Kevin Fedarko, and he came to Utah State to do a book talk on this river book he wrote about the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. And I was his handler for the day. It was my job to make sure he got to his different marks on time and make sure that he was fed and make sure that he knew where his hotel was. And so I spent a lot of time with him and we chatted and he was describing to me running a river. I was asking him questions because I'm not a river after it all. And I said, so this and that. And he said, no, you don't understand. The river is different every day of the year. And I said, oh, it is. He said, 
said, yeah. He said, in the biggest, most dangerous runs, you don't know how you're going to handle it until the day of when you're on site. And what you do is you pull your raft out of the water and you go, you know, if it's like a level four or level five rapids and you look that day for that moment in that hour and you make a plan that's going to work then. And then you get back on your boat and you do that plan. But he says, you don't know, even when you put your boat in the water first thing in the morning, what's going to come because the river is different every day of the year. And I felt so inspired by that as a metaphor for the way I have lived my life. I'm always waiting for the day to decide what my plan is. And so I don't know where I'm going to be in five years, but I know I'm going to be alive and making good choices. I know that five years from now, I'll know how to pull my boat out of the water and look at what's going on and figure out what my plan is. And I think that partly you can see that in all of these stories I've told of me coming across music, coming across learning science, coming across analytics. It was never the long-term goal but it sure has worked out. And it's because I'm willing to be flexible. And so this is my anti-Stephen Covey advice. (laughs) It's good to begin with the end of the mind. It is also good to wait and to see what will be needed in the moment so that you can have true success and not this kind of farcical fantasy of this is what I want my life to look like and I'm going to pursue it at all costs. I don't know if that's helpful. It is kind of long-winded, but it is the advice that I would give people. No, I think that's great. And I wish I would have heard that advice as a freshman because I, I think that's so true. And you know, it's interesting. I am the kind of person who, if I could plan 10 years in advance, I would totally do that. And I tried to do that. But what I found is even when I try to really plan out, you know, even a year in advance, there are so many factors that I could never predict, never even comprehend could happen in my life that it's just not possible. And so I love this approach of just taking it day by day, looking for opportunities, staying open to opportunities, but also understanding that the river is going to change and we can roll with that as well. So Mitch, such great advice. I've absolutely loved chatting with you this morning and and so appreciate your willingness to share your insights from life. And again, just really grateful that you're here with us today. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Marissa. It's been a a fun chat and I really appreciate your time. To learn more about Mitch's work, visit the links in our episode bio below. Thanks for joining us here at the Career Studio today. Please remember to join us next week as we begin to discuss our new monthly theme of building career confidence.